Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of KH Daily Knives, and this is The Knife Perspective, episode number 053. Peter and Corey Martin talk about knives. I'm going to let everybody guess who came up with that show title. <laughs> well, if somebody would update the show notes, he could make it whatever show title he wants. Hey, I had something awesome in my head if you'd have just looked. <laughs> All right. How are you doing, Dan? Man, I, I'm not gonna lie. I'm worn a little thin. Yeah. Um, yeah. Between the, uh, the blade show boogie and, uh, the, I got the final patent on my new backpack and a couple other little side gigs going on. Backpack. Um, yeah. I don't think I even knew about that. Oh, you didn't know about that? No. I, yeah. No, I, uh, maybe my Kepart can come in one of those. Oh, uh, it could actually. <laughs> Um, yeah, I've got a patent on a, a new uh, suspension system for backpacks. Okay. Um, coming for to like the market a f- soon. Full frame type thing or? Yeah. Okay. Um, cool. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Thank you. I'll send you some pictures. I'm uh, I'm pretty excited. Yeah. That's uh, cool. I I still really like to go backpacking. So haven't been since the boys were born, but uh, hopefully we when the boys are a little bit older, we can get them hiking out in the woods some more. I loved backpacking. I mean, I, I, for, uh, I would do trips like from Springer Mountain in Georgia on the Appalachian Trail up through Clingman's Dome, Spence Field. Like, loved long trips. And then I was in the infantry. Mm-hmm. And 15 or 20 years later, I decided I might want to go backpacking again. Yeah. And that's where I am now. I, lots of people think I was in the military, but never in the military. But, uh, I still still have always liked backpacking and getting out in the woods and uh, just something about camping somewhere that you can't just drive up next to and have a whole bunch of people next to you. So and that's the key part, not having a bunch of people next to you. Mm-hmm. So I've been pretty busy. Uh, the, the 3D printers in the background going. But uh, yeah, it's been been pretty cool. The I've designed a uh, epoxy bottle holder uh, for yeah. G, the G flex bottles. Uh, turns out that a lot of people get it frustrated with the same thing I did and uh, shout out to somebody that just put in an order, Kyle Nelson from flying shark knives. He huh? saw it and said, I go through so much G flex this, like I need one of these in my life now and put in a, <laughs> put I, in an order right away. I just so. got some uh, handles from him. Um, cool. Mammoth ivory and um, carbon fiber. So you're going to wait till December to do that or. I don't know, man. I, I'm waiting for the knife. I mean, the knife is going to speak to me, but I just love the concept of something truly ancient bordering on prehistoric with a super modern material. Like the, the the place that those two meet is really where I like to hang out. So, yeah. 
Yeah, you make some really cool stuff if you guys haven't seen uh, Flying Shark Knives. But yeah, I've been working on a bunch of knives. Uh, I got seven here that uh, hopefully my dealer will be picking up tomorrow morning and uh, taking it to the, the Forge to Table event out in Sacramento. It's uh, a kitchen knife show kind of invitation maker only thing, uh, but they're, it's open to the public to, to go to it. But yeah, they got a, a bunch of different people there, lots of heavy hitters from in the kitchen knife game. Mareko Mamasi and Neil Kamamura are the, the two guys that are kind of heading up the whole the whole show. There's a joke in there about meeting your dealer somewhere. I just, uh, <laughs> yeah. after pulling a 16-hour day, I just don't have it in me tonight, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, not going to be a lot of one-liners, no witty banner from Dan today. That'll make editing a lot easier. Oh, I didn't say I wouldn't have any obscenities. Uh, premium sponsors, we have Chance Knife Supply. They're uh, they're a great supporter of the podcast. They've really stepped up and uh, wanted to wanted to help out with our customers and gave a discount code for ten percent off any of their handle material. And they have a bunch of it. Uh, KP Grip is the code for that. KP G R I P is the the discount code for that. Uh, also, along the handle material realm, we have Atlas Materials. They have pretty much anything you can think of, or G10 rods, Micarta rods, uh, Micarta sheet. Uh, they also have a thing that they wanted me to mention for they want anybody that's using their materials to email Dan or Natasha the uh, some pictures of of your knives and stuff using their material, and they want to start promoting uh, makers and they're going to email out pictures, uh, with their kind of, I think it's a bi-monthly newsletter. Yeah. They want to, want to try to get, uh, get some more knives and, uh, publicity for people that are making their stuff or using their stuff. So if you are a user of Atlas materials, make sure you get a hold of them and get them, uh, some pictures of your knives and, or whatever you're making. So definitely check those out. Um, I love the colored G10 pens they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they were the first ones to do it, but I always had a thing about I like for my liners to match my pins. Curtain match the drape. Yeah, it's important. <laughs> or, you know, you could just go ahead and just clear everything out and have hardwoods, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> um, so when they brought out the colored pins, it it, it kind of gave me some more room. Like I start, I felt comfortable using more colored liners rather than just having to stick with black, white, natural. Um, yep. And it gives a little pop of color. Sometimes I'll still do, like I like a three pin setup and I'll do one pin that's color just to give it a little, a little pop. Okay. Yeah. The, the white G10 pins uh, work way better than the fiberglass rod that I was using too. Yeah. So there were a bunch of times where I was pushing the pin in and it snapped off and then have it a an epoxy mess and i'm trying to use a punch to punch the pin back out and put a new one in it was a terrible well, the fiberglass pins were never completely round for me and you wind up sanding them down a little bit to fit and trying to wind wound them round them out and then you take off too much and you wind up with a little black circle around your your pinhole and and then there's yep. a tantrum and somebody throws a knife across the shot. Uh, never mind. Listen to the <laughs> Dylan Fletcher podcast. 
And then uh, we also have Phoenix Abrasives as a sponsor of the show. And you can use discount code KP10 to get 10% off all of their materials. They have Rhino Wet Sandpaper. I've been using a bunch of that with hand sanding. I decided to hate myself and I hand sanded uh, four of these MagnaCut knives. And uh, (laughs) I'm down to about an hour per blade, uh, a little over an hour per blade. So. yeah. Bless your heart. <laughs> it's a pain. Um, but yeah, uh, the Rhino Wet Sandpaper, uh, their belts and stuff are a great deal. And uh, you can get 10% off uh, using KP10. And Old Town Cutlery is a great sponsor of our podcast. You can use discount code KP10 there also for 10% off your order. I just put in a order for more G-Flex bottles and some more Starbond. They have the the black star bond also. So uh, if you have like uh, in this spalted uh, oak handle over here, um, there were a couple little voids and where the spalting was. And I was able to squirt a little bit of the black oh. uh, star bond in there to, to match a little bit easier. So that's way quicker than having to die epoxy. Yeah. Yep. And you can get they also sell uh, when I was looking uh, they sell the five minute epoxy in the big 16 ounce bottles too. I, I got some of the small five minute epoxy. I don't use it a ton for, for knife handles. Sometimes I use it to fill in some of the, if I get a bubble in my file work or whatever, but I mainly use that five minute stuff for a bunch of stuff around the house. So that G flex yeah. is some of the best stuff I've ever used. So yeah, the, uh, y'all, y'all already know that I drank the Kool-Aid on G-Flex, especially if you're going to glue up more than one knife at a time. Mm-hmm. And they sell uh, all the epoxy dye. Lee said they're going to get some more of the black in, but they have gray and white also. So you can dye your, your epoxy to help uh, help hide some of those gaps and stuff, too. Yeah, it, it's amazing what happens when your uh, epoxy is the same color as your handle. Mm-hmm. Yep. Perfect fit up. Yeah. Something about caulk and paint makes you the uh, carpenter that you ain't. Yeah. Uh, And then Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives, as always, sponsors of the podcast. And our dealers, Old Town Cutlery, as we just mentioned, you can get some of the finest chef knives in the world there. Uh, Dogwood Custom Knives and Cage Daily Knives. And you can get Dogwood Custom Knives at the Knife Center and the Cook Station. And uh, Kevin Silverman at Northside Cutlery is going to be getting a bunch more of my knives tomorrow. The my dealer uh, in the Chicagoland area that uh, I was just talking about that's going to come tomorrow. So, Sweet. yeah, he's got. Uh, he'll have um, three. You need three magnet off. Three MagnaCut Chef's knives and two MagnaCut Santokus. So some pretty cool stuff there i got going back to atlas materials i got some of the blue ice here night mm-hmm. uh when i was there uh, it doesn't look like much when it's in slab form but um once you shape it the it looks like bubbly and stuff it looks super cool cool so check it uh, out. if you've never checked out the there's uh black and blue ice mm-hmm. uh both look really really look much cooler on a knife handle than um just a picture of the slab so definitely check those out yep so that covers the business end of the podcast i have a shout out that i meant to do on the last podcast 
but totally spaced out about it. Uh, the Work For It podcast, I was on that show. And anybody that listens to that, uh, sorry about the echo. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, my headphone jack on my computer wasn't working, and I used the headphone jack on my microphone. Apparently, there was a, an echo in and out on that. So, so your jack was off? Yeah, my jack was off, I guess. And uh, yeah, but it was a good one. Dropped a bunch of knowledge. Lots of cool stuff we talked about. Uh, if you aren't following the the Work For It podcast, they do a lot of cool stuff over there. Uh, two Brian's and a Ben over there. So definitely check those guys out. They're doing a lot of cool stuff. And a person that I just found out about, uh, Brad Jansen, he's a Wisconsin uh, knife maker. He's actually a journeyman smith uh, making some really cool stuff. And uh, you should definitely check him out. And uh, how I found him um, wasn't because anybody told me anything about him, but he tagged uh, two of the uh, hashtags that I follow on Instagram. So knife maker tips and knife shop tips are two tags that I, I follow and it shows me pictures of stuff from there. And uh, he got a four inch Kurt vice for his milling machine, which is a super, super upgrade, uh, super nice vice. Congratulations on that, Brad. And he actually, we started messaging back and forth and he invited me up there. So might try to make it up to Milwaukee and slam a hammer against something. So, and then when you talk dirty like that, yeah, uh, my last shout out is uh, I've been using this Diablo Hardy blade. It's actually made to cut um, that fiber siding. fiber siding, yeah, cement, cement fiber siding. Yeah, and it has uh, polycrystal and diamond carbide tips. Um, the blades are fairly reasonable. I see them anywhere between sixty and eighty bucks, but they're like six teeth, so you got to be kind of a little bit careful. Uh, they don't work so great for like not so much for 30, cut. well, well, for like 30,000 thick stuff. But um, <clears throat> it cut the the bias cut stuff that I use a lot, like the inch and a half thick stuff really, yeah. really nicely. So uh, those bigger, bigger teeth kind of hog it out a little bit better. So and it's, uh, the, the thicker stuff is what usually devastates your blades. Yeah. Um, how are they with heat? I guess with the fewer teeth, it doesn't heat up as badly. Yeah, I I don't really. I mean, I touch it all when it comes off the saw, and I don't really find it to be too terribly hot. Since I've switched to that crosscut sled, holding it down, it doesn't like pinch against the blade and heat up the material nearly as much. So, yeah. Really? Well, stuff. I have to give that a try. Yeah. Might have to send you over my sketch on how I made it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I, on one hand, I am seriously impressed with your crosscut sled. I mean, that is a Cadillac of a crosscut sled. My first thought when I saw it was, how the hell does he have a day and a half of free time to make a crosscut sled? Yeah. Like, like you, you can tell an engineer built that thing. Yeah, I, uh, I decided that I was over feeling unsafe trying to push it through with uh, push sticks. So decided to invest a little bit in my future and hopefully make future me much happier. So 10 fingers, 10 toes. Yeah. The, the bigger crosscut sled, uh, I bought a bunch of like 15,000 thick G10. Uh, so it's, uh, even a lot thinner. So like some of my smaller 
uh, paring knife blades and stuff. I wanted to get some of the thinner stuff because when I use like two colors of 30,000 thick, you end up losing a lot of the wood or whatever is on the outside of those handles because they're only like a quarter inch thick. Yeah, they're all liner. Yeah, so making the thinner liners was hoping that that'll give it a little bit more color pop and not not sacrifice so much of the the handle material on the outside. Well, my rule of thumb has gotten to be like my outdoor knives, I'll use eighth inch liners, but my kitchen knives and that sort of thing, I use three thirty seconds. And then like the pairing knives and stuff, I use one sixteenth. Okay. Um, that'd be freedom you, numbers. Compared you just to your, use uh, one color or you, you stack in two colors I'll stack together? stack them, but those are the, that's the total thickness of the. Okay. Liner. So yeah, I might use two one thirty second inch pieces, but my my final liner for a paring knife will be one sixteenth of an inch. Mm-hmm. Cool. Looks like you got a. Yeah, couple. I am super stoked. Um, I may or may not have abused my position as a. I don't want to say I'm famous, but the notoriety with, that we have developed in the the knife community, I may have abused that position. Uh, to get uh, JL Hansen to work with me on a custom micarta run. Okay. Uh, have you heard of the French Laundry out in uh, California? Mm-hmm. One of my chefs worked out there for about five years and happened to have a couple of uh, aprons and chef's jackets. Okay. And the French Laundry has their aprons custom made for them. The only way you can get that shade of blue, that cotton duck, that apron is to get it because you worked at the French Laundry. And I have got a block of micarta coming that is uh, Mickey did a really cool fold pattern in it for me. And it is blue and white um, French Laundry micarta, uh, French Laundry aprons and chef jackets cool. for the handles. Nice. So I am super stoked about getting those. Yeah, they do some cool stuff. Mickey really, uh, she's an artist, so really does lots of cool color patterns and stuff, too. I When when I try to explain what she does to people that aren't familiar, she does with micarta, or she does with fabric in micarta, what smiths will do with folded steel in forge-welded blades. Mm-hmm. Like the layers and the patterns and the, the textures that she builds in the micarta it's the same thing that guys will do in their blades. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. And then I, I, I'll mention Flying Shark, but I already told you all about the really badass set of uh, handle scales I got from him. Um, yeah. So just rewind like 15 minutes and you'll hear about that. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, maybe. <clears throat> and then... Uh, well, as we if, mentioned uh, before, if I, wanted to, if I wanted to learn about how to do file work, um, is there any way I could do that? Yeah, uh, I'm going to be teaching a class on Saturday, June 4th, uh, the Saturday of Blade Show, and uh, it'll be at 830 in the morning, uh, which is a little early for some people, but uh, hopefully I'll be able to make it there. All right. Uh, and when I listened to the Hustle and Grind podcast the other day, Alicia Newton was on there and she said that class is filling up quickly and almost sold out. So uh, if you are interested in that file work class, you should uh, definitely sign up quick. I look so. today and I think there's two, maybe three slots left. Okay. I never knew what actually said how many slots were left. 
Uh, I talked to Alicia. Oh, <laughs> you trying um, to get in free? No, uh, <laughs> I, I was. So if Craig has recovered enough to come down and help work the booth for me, Beth's going to be out of town, so I'm going to be solo at the booth. Mm-hmm. If Craig can work the booth, then I'm going to come to the class. If he can't, then I'll be working while you're teaching. So okay. again, I was trying to abuse my position as a celebrity to uh, to get some special <laughs> treatment. And apparently Alicia has not heard of me because she said, look, either sign up for the class or not. I don't really care. I'm busy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, but yeah, that was a super fun time last year. Met a lot of really cool people and super cool people that I didn't even think would be taking my class that were, were in there. So yeah, I'll be at table three double B in the actual show and Dan will be at booth th- 537 and our guests today, they will be at booth 518. So make sure you get by and say hi to all them. We've got the Midwest Knife Makers Guild Hammer in August 19th and through 21st. There should be some information coming out on that. Um, probably a, a June time frame. And uh, I think that's when they're starting to sell the tickets and stuff. That's not, but uh, last year they did it through the USA knife maker website uh, to buy the tickets. So keep an eye out for that. There's a bunch of really cool people that are going to be there. Uh, me included. So I will be there doing a, a firework class. If you decide not to do the, the one during blade show. But if I've done the one at blade show, can I come and learn entirely new techniques? Uh, we'll be covering probably some of the same stuff, but uh, you can ask you can ask further questions for all the file work that you've practiced between June and August. I've, I've been having trouble with my inverse uh, thorn pattern. Inverse thorn. Yeah. Isn't that still a thorn? No, it's an any thorn. <laughs> Instead of an Audi, it's an any. It's very complicated. Uh, one of the guys I saw was doing some uh, like file file work esque stuff in his liners and then hmm. fill in uh so he would take his like eighth inch liner and put a bunch yeah. of scallops and stuff down the side and that looked kind of cool so i messaged him and told him uh hey neil it was a uh, neil of maximus knives like hey uh you you're supposed to put the file work in the metal side not the <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> goes, a lot harder he goes i was trying to do something different so Look at you, the engineer, squashing people's creativity. <laughs> That's art, baby. I told him I'm just busting your balls, man. So, yeah, it turned out pretty cool. And then uh, also Please. with the Midwest Knife Makers Guild, we've got the Twin Cities Knife Show. Uh, that's going to be in Bloomington, Minnesota. And that's going to be a Friday, Saturday, Sunday show, uh, September 30th through October 2nd. It's dedicated to showcase handcrafted knives and it'll be the first year that the show has actually been on. So mm. uh, definitely, definitely check that out. And, and then, then Blade West. Yeah. Hey, you going to make it this year? Uh, still talking with my wife. Uh, that's right around when school's starting. So uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of a big deal between, between teacher wife and school age kids. That's, that's mm-hmm. kind of a big deal, isn't it? Yeah. So hopefully I can make it. I uh, definitely want to uh, be in that that's more of a kitchen knife show and that's uh, what I what I kind of do. So definitely want to try to make it out there. Uh, if you don't and everybody is, is jonesing to get a little bit of that that show perspective vibe, they, they want to see if a little bit of the 
the, the awesomeness will rub off. It will. So come on by and see me. Uh, I'll be there. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yep. Dan will be the knife per- or at least be one, uh, one if I can't make it out there for knife perspective representatives. That's why you're going. You don't trust me alone, do you? No. Hell no. I don't blame you, especially <laughs> after that last thing. Uh, All right. Dan's rants and Dan's book corner. So I'm going to replace Dan's rant tonight with another Craig update because I can. Uh, he's home. It. People at physical therapy were really amazed at his progress. Uh, he's in a wheelchair. Uh, he's home. He's still continuing to do physical therapy. He's still got a lot of work to do, but it was a huge milestone to finally be back in his home, in his bed. Um, he's working up. He's really, really hoping to try and be in a Walker by Blade show. I got kind of mixed feelings, man, because I'm really thinking sitting in his lap in the wheelchair would be a much more comfortable way to get around Blade, <laughs> but we'll, we'll work that out. Well, if you, good, get to, if you get to push him in a wheelchair, you can go, uh, wheelchair coming through, make a hole. Ooh. Well, I mean, I've, <laughs> I've already stolen two of his wheelchair placards so that I can get a good spot <laughs> when I've got to unload the. Nice. I'm a giver me. Yeah. Uh, but Craig is doing much better. He's able to talk and everything. You said the last time you had a little bit of a setback there. He did. Uh, he's recovering from the Bell's palsy. He. He's got strength to his voice. He can project it. It's it's still a little bit of a monotone. Yeah, he he's working on he's working on having more than just a voice, like get being able to get depth and emotion. But he's he's made a lot of progress. Very good. Yeah, especially for him. I mean, I think that's the longest he's ever been quiet in thirty some odd years. Yeah. Um, I can only imagine. And then uh, tonight's Dan's book corner. It's almost blade show. Dude, it's blade show boogie. I'm pulling 12 and 14 hour days. I do not have time for reading. You shouldn't have time for reading. You should be doing the blade show boogie, either preparing knives or working overtime so you can afford to buy more knives because we're all in this together. Yeah. Well, I'll be lots, hopefully lots of knives to purchase from everyone that's been on the podcast man i i'm not i'm not kidding i'm freaking out a little bit this year I mean, every year i say i'm not going to be ready i'm really afraid this is going to be the year that i'm right well it looks like you got a couple of uh a couple of knife handles and stuff been seeing you post the uh, the last few days i do i mean the the hardcore numbers just the i'll lay it out there on average i've got to sell 53 knives to break even um wow and I've got 16 finished right now. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've got zero finished right now. So I got you're, you're ahead of oh, me. Oh, sweet. All right. Well, <laughs> I'll take the rest of the day off then. <laughs> At least till you have to get up tomorrow morning. Yeah. Right. And the, uh, so I've gotten back on the mats now, <clears throat> which means my mornings now start at five because Getting my ass kicked isn't fun, so I'm back in the gym now. Nice. <laughs> Doing the bench press and stuff? or Yeah, so 
Yeah, so I've started back. I used to compete in Kodokan Judo, so I've started back in Kodokan, and I've started doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So right now I'm doing a lot more circuit training than I am um, traditional resistance training. Because I still going to go in the UFC. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I actually am. Um, really? Yeah. Uh, oh. The one in Greenville happens to have some really phenomenal coaches, mm. and I originally was there, like I said, for the Kodokan Judo, and it's just hard to find a a, a good Judo sensei, okay. especially in this part of the country. And there's been some crossover there with the Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, so I've started training with those guys as well. But I've still got a, another good 15 pounds to, to shed. So right now I'm doing a lot of um, a lot of circuit and cardio, just working on endurance and flexibility. So is there going to be no uh, no dogwood dinner on Saturday or a plate show? Um, well, what have you heard? <laughs> I haven't heard anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll talk about it off air. All righty. Uh, cool. Uh, anything else? Um, no, nah, that's pretty much it, man. All right. Hey, you know, it gets a little thin when we get close to Blade Show. Yeah. Really, y'all are lucky we're having a show right now. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, our, our next show uh, hopefully will be no editing and just putting up the beginning and outro music and hit go. So, um, wait, we're doing another show. You said you wanted to or we were going to do another show. All right, all right, one more show. That's that's it. You said we we're going to have Alicia on again. We are. So, um, and she's going to do Blade Show do's and don'ts and go over some of the new rules and things that have changed. And sounds good. Yeah. Oh, also, if you need uh, cap passes, the uh, uh, customer appreciation passes, let uh, Dan or I know. We can try to hook you up with people we know or some of the ones we have and uh, want to try to get our listeners some of those. It's a three-day pass for $50, and you get in an hour early on Friday. So the early bird gets you in two hours early. The customer appreciation pass gets you in an hour early. So if you're going to be at Blade Show, uh, definitely uh, saves you quite a bit of money to do the, the cat pass. It's about 30 bucks cheaper for the three-day pass, and you get in an hour ahead of all the other losers. Yeah. And some of those two-hour uh, guy, guys that get in two hours early, they're, like, sprinting, being at the front of the room. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, this year, you need to come to my table and watch that, Dan, since you've never, never seen the, the bagpipes and stuff. They're sprinting to my table to get first pick. I I see it every year. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No, those are the guys. Those are the guys that are trading elbows for that one knife that they have spent the last six months coveting and planning for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Super cool. Uh, All right. Uh, Interview. interview? You want to introduce them or you want me to? Uh, You know what? Let's see what you got. All right. We've. Uh, today we have Peter Martin and we also have Corey Martin back on the show. Uh, Corey did a bang up job with uh, the last episode. I actually have listened to the interview of that two additional times on top of the time I listened to it again, editing it. So uh, tons of great information in that show. Uh, Peter is his father and has uh, been a knife maker for a little over 35 years. I think I heard and 
definitely looking forward to learning more about everything. Learned that uh, I didn't realize he was on Forged and Fire, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. And he's been to tons of knife shows and everything over his 35 years, and I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of great information in this show, too. So, hi, Peter. How are you doing? Doing real good. Thank you. And you're you're still there, Corey. I know you said you weren't feeling too terribly great. You uh, you're yeah, still I'm here. I'm just I'm just uh, watching my dad's head get bigger as you give all of his accolades. You know, hey. uh, we can we can knock it down here in a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so one of the first questions we always like to start with, Peter, where'd you grow up? Uh, in the booming metropolis of West Dallas, Wisconsin. Okay. Which is a suburb of Milwaukee. Uh, when my parents moved out there, it was nothing but dirt now it's uh you know of course it's all neighborhoods now but anyway yeah nice. born and raised here in wisconsin yeah i know you said you were a big fisherman have you always done that um uh, yeah pretty much i mean as far back as i can remember uh i can remember using cane poles and you know uh, barbers when i was a kid okay so if it had scales i was after it nice and then one of the other ones we always like to start with is what was the first knife you had growing up, if you can remember that far back? Uh, let's see. First, very first knife I ever had was one that my dad helped me make out of a industrial hacksaw blade. Wow. Um, and then shortly after that, I was going to become an expert in throwing knives, that one. And lasted about eight or nine shots, and then that one broke in two pieces. <laughs> so, uh, but after that, it was a Barlow, the old, old-fashioned Barlow. There we go. Mm-hmm. So, did your dad make knives, too, or? No, it was, uh, again, strictly out of necessity. Uh, I still have one that he made back in the day. Black micarta handle, not, not even linen micarta. It was just black paper micarta out of that same saw blade that I mentioned earlier. Very cool. Uh, sometimes it's uh, it's necessity. <laughs> well, and there too, I can remember him standing over that bench with a file in his hand. Now, here's this hacksaw blade at Rockwell's, what, 40, 42, something like that. And him scrubbing away on that, on that thing with a file for hours, you wow. know, and finally creating this knife out of that. And I thought, well, heck, I can do that. And, of course, I figured I could do it in 10 minutes. Yeah. It looked like well, that's because you're younger and stronger. Oh, of course, absolutely. And the patience of a gnat. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, he. I've always he, heard that. Uh, how do you know when your your kids are smarter than you? They'll they'll tell you. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> I, that must have happened a long time ago for me because he's been telling me for years. <laughs> Man, I am so lucky. Jack is starting to get into his twenties. And I'm slightly not a complete idiot now. Nice. Wow. You're moving up in the world. Yeah, no, no. A, a couple of more years and I'll actually have some intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. And at least more than just paying for paying for dinner. Yeah. No, <laughs> no. There's there's a point in their life where they, they look back and they go, Dad had it together. You know, they know a lot. Yeah. Well, you can't tell them that when they're younger, though. I think it was Mark Twain that said, the older I get, the more intelligent my parents are. Yes. Agreed. Nice. Do you want to give Agreed. them right. want to give them the Dan question? You know, I, I, I feel like you were saving it for me. I was. 
A, another traditional question is, how did you meet your wife and where does it rank on the Dan Kyle scale? Uh, and just for those that aren't familiar with the scale, just to, to clear things up, Kyle met his wife on a dating service and I picked my wife up at her grandmother's wake. Wow. Wow. Well, <laughs> uh, mine isn't quite that spectacular. I met her at a strip club. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. Welcome to Team Dan, baby. No take back. I, I wish I could have taken a screenshot of Dan's eyes. He was he was loving it. Oh, uh, don't be afraid to be honest. Hey, she's never going to listen to this show. You can just be honest. No, I met her at a uh, through my neighbor. You know, back. You know, way back. I've never been to that club. Where is? That? <laughs> You know, it's a very unassuming meeting or whatever you want to call it, but yeah, that's the truth. Yeah. Very cool. <sighs> Another Kyle. <laughs> well, we've been married this uh Jan in this coming January it'll be forty years. So Yeah, all right. Wow. Yeah. All we, at the same time too, all together. Yeah. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. So how did you get how and why did you get started in in knives? You or I guess you did a bunch of fishing and stuff. Did it kind of all stem from necessity or? Uh, well, yeah, no. Um, back when I was a younger man, I've, I hunted everything. If it was brown, it was down. If it flied, it died. If it crawled, it sprawled. Uh, and the knives back in the 80s were so poor, you know, factory stuff, um, that I heard about a guy locally that made knives. And uh, so I went and spoke with the guy, told him what I wanted, told him what I was doing. And it took him six months. He made this knife, and uh, it was the best thing I ever put in my pocket. Yeah, well, it was on my belt. It was a belt knife, but I still have that knife. Yeah. And it worked so well, um, I went back to the guy and I said, oh, you got to show me how this works. How did you do this? And uh, so he gave me the nickel tour, and that was pretty much the end of it. About uh, a year later, he had an industrial accident and called me up. He said, hey, are you still interested in making knives? I went, well, yeah, kind of, because, I mean, I mean, I drag raced. I did all kinds of buildings and stuff like that. Anyway, uh wound up buying his equipment, and uh, from there it was trial and error and reading books and off to the races. That was back in 1988. Okay. So when we had Corey on the show, I had a few of, uh, few of your friends that messaged me, and uh, – one of the one of the questions they wanted me to ask is if you could only pick one color, would you pick yellow or blue? Blue, blue, blue. He was he was fairly certain that uh, that was going to be the be the color. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because every every knife I make, if you don't specify colors, aligners, and stuff like that, or a blade, it's going to be blue. <laughs> As it should be. As yeah. it should be. You're right. We're, we're still trying to patent pen that, that Martin Blue. <laughs> that Martin Blue. That's blue, somebody, yeah. yeah. That's a Martin Blue. No, it's just blue, man. My, uh, my favorite color is blue also. And uh, I got way too much blue handle material. And turns out not everybody likes a, likes a blue knife. So sometimes you got to make something different. A while ago, Beth was giving me a hard time about only wearing blue. I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't just wear blue. And she's like, come here. She goes to a closet, opens the door. She's like, oh, wow. All I wear is blue. Your dogwood shirt was like a maroon color. It was, and that was very intentional. <laughs> um, <laughs> Beth told me it could be any color but blue. <laughs> nice. 
Uh, my shirts are still blue. If you want a want a KH Daily Knife shirt uh, on the website, they're still blue. Uh, no, I might. Uh, well, never mind. I'll off air. <laughs> uh, one of one of the other questions was if you could only pick one handle material to use for the rest of your life. What is a a natural material? What's a Damascus and what's a synthetic material? You have to pick one of each. Pearl for the uh, natural material. Uh, my lava lamp for Damascus, and then it would be carbon fiber for the synthetics. Mm. Nice. Uh, I hate I hate carbon fiber. I mean, I hate working with it, but it has some of the coolest effect I've ever seen. So, uh, have you? Have you used any of the Chateauant carbon fiber from Johnny Blaze? Um, the Dichrolam stuff. Dichrolam, yeah. yes. Yes. Well, well, he does the Dico, Dio, that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he also does some carbon fiber, and it's mm-hmm. – I don't know how he does it. It's ingrained, but it has Chateauants like Fiddleback Maple, that, that depth and reflectiveness. Yeah. Um, he does some carbon fiber that's got that in it as well. Yeah, I've used uh, a couple pieces of his, uh, actually with a, uh, a sheet of copper in there that you were talking about with the Chateauans and that. And it's just, yep. it's gorgeous stuff. It's beautiful, beautiful. But it still makes me itch no matter what. <laughs> uh, sand and carbon fiber is just, yeah. It is oh, what, it's the devil. It is. Even with uh, most of my sanding I do with uh, uh, Windex, you know, a liquid, uh, coolant, yep. whatever. And uh, even still, it gets it on me and yeah, I'm still itching. Yeah, we talked about that. That that's always what you do at the end of the day. Yep. Um, and <laughs> I also learned that a cold shower, yeah, like the the hot water opens up your pores and it'll just get in deeper. Mm-hmm. That uh, rinsing the carbon fiber dust off with cold water makes it less miserable. Slightly, yeah. slightly less yeah. miserable. <laughs> it doesn't make it good. It just makes it less bad. Yeah. <laughs> and then the the last question was, what's with all the bugs and animals? And uh, oh. I got a whole list of different knives and stuff that uh, well, you had, to go, you had to go there. <laughs> right out of the gate. Here we go. Uh, 50,000 years ago, Barry Gallagher made a knife that looked like a wasp, and it was the side profile of it. And I spoke with Barry, and I said, hey, look, I really want to do a bug knife, but I want to do it a top view. And he said, well, knock yourself off. So I did. And that started it. And then from there, it went to beetles and, you know, scorpions and worms and all kinds of stuff. And that's how the bug thing came about. Okay. So for a while there, I had the nickname of Bugman, and I really didn't, didn't go, that didn't go over well with me. I uh, didn't really <laughs> feel that one was fitting. But uh, when you say it bugged you? Yeah, a little bit. A little yeah. Bit. yeah. When I was looking through your, your Instagram posts, I didn't notice many of the, many of the bug ones. I did see the bat. Uh, bat knife yeah. in there, but yeah, the, the bug knives were older. That was yeah, that, that was a while ago. Um, and the problem was that they kept winning awards. They would win like best in show, so we had to just keep making them and keep outdoing the previous one. You know, okay. But there too, you you limit your demograph when you start into something like that or that caliber, and uh, pretty soon you're running out of customers. And next thing I know, I'm building what I'm building today. So yeah, so yeah the. In the in the show notes, there's links to his website and stuff for the the, the different folders. He's got some steampunk ones also that are super amazing. Uh, yeah, I, in the 
on his website he's got a gallery and uh probably one of the one of the best websites for having professional photographers that's uh it's amazing how that how that works out <laughs> you, uh, have no idea, you have no idea the price i paid for those pictures <laughs> i could only and they're still paying today <laughs> I, I could only imagine that uh yeah uh yeah the the just all the the repertoire of uh stuff is super cool and uh i was looking at those for different times and for hours so um one of the ones or that that bat knife was one of the ones i wanted to wanted to mention how'd you decide to kind of come across that because the the wings look like they only open like 90 degrees right or correct correct and it's a kind of an odd thing there was a couple we knew was a knife collector and his wife and his wife was big time into bats so i decided well we'll try making this bat with two wings instead of one and uh, so that wasn't the hard part. The hard part was getting those wings to be driven simultaneously, open at the same time. So there's two, actually two models of that bat. One was a switchblade on a, on a belly. You had a belly button. You pushed the belly button, and then both wings flew open. The other two were a cable drive. You pulled, you grabbed him by his fat little head, and you pulled his feet. And as you pulled the feet, it operated two cables, and the cables would pull both wings open so and they were both liner locks and you had to you know unlock them each and then fold it back down and he had a uh, a single piece of rod iron forged into a tree that he hung on which was kind of a work that's a work of art all in itself but uh yeah yeah a lot of work a lot of playing around so with the the push button belly one mm-hmm. that's got to be you gotta you gotta know where your hand is when before you push that button right Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Otherwise, you'd be wearing it, you know. Um, yeah, you had to literally, the, the operating procedure was to grab him by the head. Okay. That was both all of those, all three cases. You just grab him by the head and either push the button or pull his feet, one of the two. So for those heads, you've got like ears and stuff. Did you yeah. do you sculpt all that by, by hand or did you forge? Yeah, or? No, that's all sculpted by hand. You okay. just take a huge block of Damascus and just start carving away on it. Yeah. You, you know, remove everything that's not a bat. Right. Everything that's not a head correctly. Yeah. Just like making a canoe. Yeah. You know, one of the other ones that I saw that wasn't bug or steampunk or whatever was the Templar sword. Uh, <laughs> that one was uh, super crazy. Cool. You want to talk about anything? with yeah, that? Or? Uh, okay. There's a local guy uh, who is the sword customer or sword buyer or whatever. He, his wife confronted me and said, my husband collects swords. Would you be interested in making a sword? And I said, well, there's always multiple things. But I said, yeah, I, I could do a sword. Um, anyway, uh, she commissioned me to make this sword out of 80 CRV, and it's 36 or 37 inches long, something like that. And uh, comparatively to what I normally make, it was like sanding a school bus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, literally, I'm going from something that's three inches long to 38 inches long, and it was like, wow, this sucks. Uh, <laughs> I have my hats off to those sword makers out there because they are just labor-intensive pieces of artwork. Um, there are two. I am not a sword maker. I'm a knife maker that occasionally makes a sword, where in other cases, they're sword makers who occasionally make knives. And they, you know, they appreciate what I do, and I deeply appreciate what they do. So, but I did make it, and she was very happy. And he's placed another order for a uh, wagasashi. Hmm. So we're I'm we're currently working on that one. 
So did you heat treat that in your forge or how did you, uh, how did you no, heat treat I, that? I sent them out. Okay. I sent, uh, I had two swords done. Uh, I sent those out to someplace in Michigan that does uh, uh, austenitizing heat treat. In other words, in salt, high okay. and low temperature salt, which is what I use in my shop, but they have it on a much larger scale. Okay. Uh, so I sent them out, had them heat treated and then, yeah, start sanding. Because if you're not liking sanding, you got more of it to do. So. <laughs> Making a sword seems like one of those things you do once. Uh, no, I actually had to make one for Forged in Fire. Uh, but prior to that, I had made a couple of katanas. So like I said, it's not totally out of my realm. It's just not my, you know, color of choice, I guess you'd call it. Yeah, I could get that. Uh, one of the other uh, kind of your one of your more it seems like one of your more recent photos of folder knife uh, was this clover leaf bolstered one. It looks like it has some like red fat carbon and a bunch of crazy Timascus and stuff there. Ooh, yeah, that's a neat knife. Um, there too, my son stepped into the picture. Uh, we had I had purchased a CNC milling machine for him. Um, and occasionally he does work for me, but mostly for him. Um, that's a pretty amazing dad, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. It's, uh, I, this is my story. I'm sticking to it. Um, a CNC mill is like walking into a strip club. The only thing is, is all you've got are, you get a wife, you know, no. <laughs> but all you've got are hundred dollar bills and you got to make it rain. <laughs> or oh, doesn't doesn't turn on for you. It though. doesn't turn on for you. You have to make it rain with ah. hundreds, and that's a CNC milling machine. So uh, it's it's an awesome machine. I just I just can't say enough about it. I just don't know how to run it. So, well, and that, that clover is kind of t- touch on that clover. That's okay. kind of your your like logo. Right. The, the, the clover thing is a, a part Irish, even though our family members argue against it. Uh, but I've used it for my logo f- since time immemorial uh since the beginning a customer of mine wanted me to incorporate uh, some kind of a clover in the handle and i went with this idea of like the keyhole thing but only with a clover which makes uh, Mm -hmm. makes it a whole lot more difficult uh the way that works is that the clover itself has a piece of it that's undercut missing from the bottom of it and the handle material cuts across underneath so only one screw is required to hold the whole thing down they're interlocking not only up and down, but top to bottom and in and out. All right. So literally a keyhole, literally uh, on every sense of the word. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's, it was a, again, I hats off to my son for doing all of the programming and stuff. And of course I get the, I get the easy job of, you know, finishing the rest of the knife and, you know, it's a piece of cake, but. Yeah. So you are pretty cool. I meant really sounds like a real pain in the backside. Oh God. Yeah. Jumping yeah, there's only one. <laughs> yeah. So jumping, jumping around a little bit, uh, what, what CNC do you have? Uh, Tormac 440. Okay. Uh, the Tormac is an excellent, excellent machine, and especially where, uh, like in my shop, uh, real estate is a commodity. Um, I don't have a lot of real estate left. Yeah. And that small machine really does everything I needed to do as far as its capabilities and the size or the footprint it takes up in the shop. Yeah, I know when I was interviewing Walter Sorrells, he has a Tormach that he does his kind of like mm-hmm. production line with. And he said that that's one of his best purchases he's ever purchased one. Oh, I agree. 
uh, back in the day, now this dates back to like 2000, I had purchased a grizzly mill that was converted to a CNC. And uh, so it, it had all the lead screws and all the neat stuff that it's supposed to have, uh, but all kinds of issues with that as far as the accuracy of it. Um, there too, just stuff. It's, it's, it was never intended to be a CNC mill. So having said that, we, we uh, forced that issue for a number of years. And then finally I said, well, I got to, if we're going to do this, we have to at least jump in with both feet. Uh, and like I said, I haven't seen the surface since I've been four, four to six feet underwater ever since. So, um, you're not a man of half measures. No. Funny, no. and while I'm standing on your shoulders, I'm yeah. above water. Yeah, 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 I'm five foot five underwater. He's six foot standing <laughs> on top of me, you know. Um, no, I mean, the same thing could be said, like, even when I started forging steel back in the 90s. Everybody said that, you know, well, power hammer's the way to go, did that. Um, then I saw somewhere in an article uh, that somebody was making their own power hammers. So I started looking into this. And uh, anyway, one thing led to another. I I built an air hammer, 110-pound air hammer, out of, again, necessity or not necessary necessity, but out of want. I built a small 20-pounder that you can throw in the back of a pickup truck and run with a five-horse air compressor so I That's could take it cool. to hammerings, literally drive it around in the tri-state area and do these hammerings with this little baby hammer. And people were just enamored with this thing. They loved it. Hmm. So anyway... Um, yeah, so I built two power hammers, my own press, a rolling mill, numerous hammers for other people. Yeah, I've been building equipment as long as I've been building knives. So, so uh, kind of backing up, when or when did you go full time with making knives? Was the eighty eight? I think you said or uh, eighty eight. I started making knives. Um, I still had a real job, uh, even though it was third shift driving truck. Uh, I didn't go full-time until 2003. Okay. The company I was driving for went out of business. And, and it, I told my wife, I said, I'd like to try this full-time. And she said, well, okay, we'll do it on a on a need-to-see basis. If you make it work, it'll be a trial basis. So it's been on a trial basis for the last, what, uh, 20 years. So She's just waiting to see if it'll work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's still out on the fence on this one, so... So what was the industry like back uh, when you started? Archaic. <laughs> so uh, internet didn't exist, or if it did, it was in its infancy. Uh, everything you learned was either by hammerings, did a lot of hammerings in those early years. Uh, every year, one or two or three different hammerings I would go to just to learn. And then there too, a lot of books, a lot of uh, VHS tapes and Stuff like that. So how did you how did you sell your knives back then? What did you have like a catalog that you would send out or yeah shows um, or right? I would you know again started off in the Badger State here you know doing local shows um, and there too uh, joined the Knife Makers Guild and also joined uh, the American Bladesmith Society and uh, the guild required you to have a brochure so I had one of those printed up. <laughs> And you'd hand them out, of course, at shows. And, you know, there, too, I started traveling and doing shows. Yeah, if uh, if you wanted to advertise, it was literally in the magazines. That was it. That was your only recourse. When, uh, did, when did things, for knife makers at least, start to shift from print to digital? 
I, I'm going to say right around, believe it or not, the, the you know, Twitter and uh, Facebook and what was some of them early ones? That, that was, yeah, like my, MySpace. That was probably about 2010-ish, late late 2000s, you know, around 2010 and, and beyond is really when the digital stuff started to, I would say, kind of started to take over a little bit. So, yeah, then a website was obviously, you know, very important, even if it was to a very limited audience it was still very important and i think 2005 was when we made your first website correct mid mid 2000s i think so yeah it was uh there to everything we did with chiseled into stone you know with an old hammer and a chisel <laughs> speaking of chiseling in stone did y'all ever do anything with the with any of the knife forums or yeah yeah i did um the usual suspects network and knife dogs and stuff like that oh yeah i was absolutely in they were big things, you know, back in those days, uh, even though they may have been short-lived because of Facebook and some of the other, you know, Instagram and stuff like that. Uh, I still pester them once in a while, you know, just to say, hey. Well, it was the, I mean, it was a huge jump from go buy the book or the VHS tape to be able to have some interaction with knowledgeable people without driving two states away to go to a show. Correct. Correct. You know, I mean, Back in the day, a phone was important for me, but not a cell phone. It was the regular phone where I could call up, you know, my mentors, as you had mentioned, you know, I had three of them. I would call up Howard Clark about heat treating, and this guy could answer my questions over the phone. This guy was a walking encyclopedia of heat treating and or forging because he had forged, you know, several tons of steel. It's like, well, I'm, this is happening. That's happening. He would be able to tell me over the phone what I was doing wrong or what I wasn't doing right, I guess. Um, and the same thing when it came to making folding knives or whatever, R.B. Johnson was a little, another one, an encyclopedia of, of knives because I couldn't screw up a folder that he didn't already have to fix at one point in his life. So he knew right away what to do with this stuff. So it's kind of cool. You know, you, you, uh, you definitely, you know, nurtured friendships out of stuff like that which is a good thing, I guess. Talking about screwing stuff up and knowing how to fix it. The best definition of a professional I've ever heard is, is a professional is somebody that's made every mistake. So they've had to learn how to fix every mistake. And that's when you become a professional. Correct. So in the, the early days, did you start off doing folders or was it fixed blades or what were yeah, just fixed blades? Yeah. Like everybody. Like hunters um, and stuff? Or? Yeah, hunting knives. Absolutely, because that's what I was doing, you know. The, and as we all know, fixed blades are God's knives. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, folding knives only because you wanted to get fancy. But there too, you know, once you've made a certain number of straight knives, the, the, the progression to a folding knife is almost natural, you know. And of course, it requires an entire new shop of, of equipment, which never never scared me off, so... Well, you're always looking for the next mountain to climb. Correct. Correct. And how do I get over get over the top of it the fastest? You know? Yep. So So when did you start uh, doing the the folding knives? Was that more recent or cuz that I've uh, only ever known known your folding knife stuff. Yeah, no, I started making folders uh I'm going to say 96 97, but really didn't become very proficient at it until late nineties, you know, 99, 2000. Uh, and then I decided, well, in early 2001 or two, I decided to change my mark. Well, that was a huge mistake. 
there too. It went, you know, from I had a clover leaf cut out somewhere, and I went just to Martin Knives, and people were like, "That's not your knife." So everything <laughs> there too, having to walk backwards, you know, go back to the original stuff, and just it just says Martin. That's it. You know. Now there's some very highly collectible, suspectly marked knives. Up. <laughs> yes, there are. Yes, there are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So how did it change uh, bringing Corey on? To the bad. It went bad from there. It's all downhill. It's all downhill. No, uh, I, I mean, I, that's just understood. No, I'm just okay. trying to understand right. how bad and how quickly. Uh, actually, the, um, the, the precision machining uh, took a huge leap forward because he was showing me things that could be done with a CNC, even though it wasn't a real CNC machine. It could be done with that machine far more accurate than I could ever do, you know, as far as like patterning handle material and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, and then it, once it got into the inlay work, putting pockets into a side of the handle and then putting an inlay into it, that's when we found out that machine was sorely lacking in accuracy. But anyway, the point is, is that he showed me the benefit of a CNC machine for what I could design it or use it for in my designs. So from there, uh, literally, I would, I would say a year, maybe two years uh, after we got the Tormac, that's when it really, really paid off. Yeah, that, that first machine back in the day, I think I was trying to talk you into getting like a Haas or something or yeah. 40000 50000 and you're like, yeah, get out of here, you know. <laughs> so then we found that, that sort of home-built CNC machine, and the main issue with that was it was some guy's software that he designed himself. So if you imagine if you imagine an arc, just as, or even a simple line, the machine would want to go from one end to the other. Well, one end of it, if you zoom way in, had a square. You don't had a, a diamond shape. You had to link the squares and the diamonds in order for it to follow the right line. What we were having happen is I would draw it in in, in AutoCAD, and then this thing was doing the the star of David, was zigzagging and, and screwing <laughs> up the parts, and it was like, what is the problem with this? So then we we finally got a hold of the guy, and he he said, you got to zoom in. You had to zoom in like four thousand percent to see this little square. And it was oh, like, oh, okay, that changed everything. And then from there, we were able to do like some simple texturing or there was one night for, a, it was for a, a pharmacist. They wanted the RX put in the handle. You know, so we did that. Uh, just relatively basic stuff. Um, but it was like, yeah, you can, you know, you can start to do some texturing and, and that kind of thing. Um, and then it was, yeah, what about doing an inlay? And then that's where that machine really, the, the tolerances weren't tight enough. So it was very difficult to, to make it work. So we kind of just let it sit and just kept it basic. And then and once the Tormac came in, then it was a totally different story. For the inlays, you were trying to do like a positive and negative cut. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and when you're cutting, when you're cutting metal or plastic, the the machine handles it differently. So you're you have tool deflection. So if you're cutting the in, in the pocket out of a piece of let's say zirconium or titanium or stainless or brass, it it reacts differently. So your tolerances have to be different. And then if your inlay, let's say your inlay is pearl, or if it's that some of that dichrolam stuff, or if it's wood or whatever, it's gonna over or undercut it so you have to have your tolerances right so that the, the inlay doesn't just fall in and be sloppy but you also don't want it to be super tight where you have to beat the thing in and, and potentially ruin it so it's a, it's a the, game of chasing thousands or tens of thousands even and you're trying to allow for the flex in the metal but no flex in the the harder inlay material yeah you have to accommodate it differently so if you have a, a perfect one inch round square or one inch round hole and your inlay is one inch, you'll never get it to fit. You have to be, have it be slightly undersized. Well, when you got this a, a shape of an inlay that's got curves and bends and corners and 
the, the tool is in there kind of walking back and forth as you as it's cutting. So you have to accommodate for all that stuff. So we yeah. I have programs where it's like metal inlay, metal frame, or metal frame and pearl inlay, or metal and plastic, or metal and wood, or whatever it is. So there's different programs. And that's a lot of trial and error. That's literally cutting templates out of you know plastic and trying it out. And you know, you, you have to kind of run through the gamut of the test stuff first before you get the final re- uh, final result. Yeah, killing a hundred dollar set of pearl. You know, because it was undercut by three thousand. Dad gets upset at that. Dad I, gets real I, I get a little, a little testy over that. Yeah. Uh, I, gee, I wonder which one of you's paying the bills. Yeah, I can, right. You can pretty much figure that out. Um, yeah. I see one. I saw one that was superconductor, like an inlay of superconductor. Um, mm-hmm. I imagine that was pretty pricey, also. Oh yeah, yeah, because that's copper. You know, it's copper, which is super, super soft. And then the the shiny spots in superconductor are niobium or something like that, which is really hard. So as it's cutting, you'll have copper, you know, which is soft and then hard, soft, hard. It's kind of a real pain in the butt to get it to work right. Because it wants to run and then it holds and then it wants to run. Correct. And then it's cold and then it's hot. Mm -hmm. It makes a scallop for you and you didn't even want it. How about that? (laughs) You know, so... No, but he's uh, he's shown me, you know, some things on that machine, as you mentioned earlier, like with that cloverleaf uh, keyhole job, that knife there was it's spectacular. Uh, you could literally put the two pieces together off the knife and hold them up horizontally, and it will not fall out. Literally, it, it's the size on size. It was awesome. Um, there, too, there is just no way you're doing that by hand. No way. Yeah. No, I guess you could, but it, you'd be there for four weeks. Well, the amazing part about that CNC thing is that to cut both of those pieces was like 28 minutes or something. When it's By the time you bolt it down to take it off the machine, it's really quick. It's like there's no way you could do that by hand, you know, not not yeah. to that accuracy. And it would take you days and days and days, you know, sitting so on the file and sandpaper, and it would be way too tedious. And And that's the very legitimate point is it can be done by hand, but right. it can't be done that quickly by hand. Right. Correct. And t- as we all either know or are about to learn, time is money. Yeah. Well, and, and now if someone says, hey, I want another clover knife, well, we got it. We got the program, you know, yeah, we can do it. So, well, and I was thinking when you were talking about all the different programs for different entities, I mean, that's the million dollars right there <laughs> is all those programs that are built on all the trial and error. Right. Yeah. Like I said, a couple pieces of pearl bit the farm and, some other rather pricey materials only to find out that, oh, we could have corrected that, you know? So. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lie. I looked at, was looking into some CNC machines and it was going to be an investment, not just in cash, but I'm so old school. I still have a parallel bar. Like I was going to have to learn CAD <laughs> and it didn't take me long to realize that it wasn't the up, the startup cost. It was the experience and building the profiles that it just made sense for me to, I, I just hired a CNC guy. There you go. You know, if I, again, uh, hindsight being always twenty twenty, of course. Um, I don't know. I because Corey is here, I would do the same thing. But if I was in your shoes, where I didn't have that bank of of knowledge to rely on, oh, absolutely. You know, oh, just I'd farm give that a, stuff out. I would give an appendage to have somebody in house that could do it. Um, <laughs> I just don't have one I can give up right now. Yeah. Well, the price is too high to pay. Trust me on that. So. <laughs> I mean, you you were already invested. There was no getting out of this. So. No. No. It was uh, it was a foregone speak- conclusion after I bought the first mill. 
where it was going to wind up. The only question was, how much was the next mill going to cost? That was it, you know. So, and could it pay for itself? Well, that's that jury's still out yet. I think it's paid for itself no. because I'm just trying, I'm trying to justify my position. You know, <laughs> he's trying he's trying to hold his position yeah. in the Martin Martin. Uh, yeah. Well, state, speaking uh, of justifying your position, how has it been having an in-house photographer? And expensive. how does that change things, especially in the, the days of Internet? Uh, expensive. Um, no, it's actually been great because uh, that's one of the things, and I am not going to lie, I sorely suck at photos. I don't know if it's just old eyes or whatever you want to call it. I just can't take a photo. I just can't. Um, and he just yeah, excels at it. Excels at it. So, yeah, it's been great. I mean, if he... He can really make a knife look good. There too, I've seen some of the magic that he creates on 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 the internet, and it's just like wow, uh, those knives look fantastic. So I I still occasionally see. I think the first year y'all were next to me, you shot some for me, and from time to time, I still see those come up in places. Yeah, and that's been ten years. Yeah, good photos. Good photos will sell the knife for you. You know, yeah, that's a fact. Uh, anybody tells you different, they're lying or they just can't sell a knife. But a good photo will show up, just like you said, it'll show up years and years after the knife is long since gone, but it helps sell the next one too. So that's huge. That's a big thing. Yeah. Corey photoed or photographed a couple of knives for me at the the Badger show. Uh, some of the first professional photography stuff that I have ever had done. Wish I would have done it earlier, but didn't. I didn't feel like my knives were quite that, uh, quite ready for something like um, that yet. They weren't. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Yeah, I mean, you eventually you, just, you reach a point where you, you, you know, it's like you feel like your work's good enough. And it's like, well, I might as well just take the plunge and, you know, get some photos done. And yeah, I mean, it definitely, it can't hurt, you know. Um, well, it's like investing in any other part of your business. I mean, right. it, it's literally that, an investment. Yeah, and especially since you can you can reuse the photos for anything, you know, because when I when I send them to you, I mean, I, there's no there's no copyright on that. I mean, that's your photo, you know, so you can use it in if you wanted to make a, a brochure, a pamphlet, or a whatever, you know, throw them up on your website. That's yours. I mean, you can do whatever you want with it for as long as you have it, you know. So, um, I, you know, I send it off to the the books too, and you know, they'll it's up to their discretion when if and when they use it, you know. So you may not see it for a year or two, but. Um, you know, it definitely gets sent and it, it, you know, it gets in their hands. So yeah, it's, it's definitely something that's worth, eventually you, you have to get to a point where you, you see the value of the photo and, you know, it, it it's worth it. Well, it's, 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 you've got to see it as a marketing expense. Right. Yeah. That's yeah, exactly. That's, it's, that's what, that's exactly what it is. Is anything that's like your business cards, that's technically a marketing expense. You know, um, the, your website fees, the yearly <laughs> fees, that's a marketing expense. You know, then just the photography, it's just rolled into the marketing stuff. Um, yeah. All those expenses add up. And when you're, especially when you're yeah. starting out, it gets hard. <laughs> to, yeah. To wanna, true. Yeah. I under, I understand that I need to do all this stuff. I just don't want to pay for all that stuff. When, and you can like, like <laughs> what I do with, uh, with Jess Hoffman, for example, you know, every time I see him, he's always got some new model, you know, he's been making a bunch of different models and it's like, I, he says, yeah, what, what do you want to photograph? He asked me what I want to photograph of his. It's like, well, I haven't seen that one. Uh, I haven't seen that one. 
you know, he's made that that particular model maybe 10 times already, 15 times, but I've never seen it. It I've never photographed it. So it's like, well, why not just snap a picture of it and then hopefully it gets in the books, you know? So he, he's at the point where he just, anything that's new or whatever, he just wants to get a, a record of it, you know, so moving forward, he, he has it documented at least. Um, and that's, that's what I've done with my dad's stuff over the years is, you know, he's had a lot of, you know, with the, the orders that come in, it might be the same lava lamp blade, you know, carbon fiber handle and, you know, Mokotai bolsters. He's made that knife 10 times, you know, so I don't necessarily need to photograph it every time. Um, but the, the ones that have the inlays that are unique, like the, with the clover, that kind of thing, you know, it's like, yeah, let's get, we need to get that photographed because that's pretty wild, you know? Yeah. You're kind of in a unique area with having all those, all those different things documented on your website, which is really cool. Years ago, I also, I made a collage of, it was early on in his, um, uh, maybe like 2016, 2017. So it was like right after the Forge of Fire thing. I made a collage of all the various knives that I photograph, all the different models, and I lined them all up. And it's it's available on his website uh, somewhere, where it's it's you know artificial background. I just kind of cut and paste from the previous photos I did, and you can see a real good mix of them. It's a very very outdated photo at this point. I, I should do another one with the more modern stuff. Um, but when you see them all side by side like that, it's like, geez, man, it's that's quite the quite the arsenal of, of knives. So. As you've grown, especially moving from fixed blade to folders, uh, is there anything you would have done differently? Yeah, sought out a real job. <laughs> oh. <laughs> hey, no, no. hey um, this is a family show. We okay. don't need that kind of language around okay. here. Um, anything I'd have done differently. Um, <clears throat> but you're glad you did. I'm glad I stuck with making my own steel. Um, there's a lot of makers out there that buy that never picked up a hammer in their life. I mean, not for forging, I'm saying, but buy, uh, you know, commercially made Damascus or whatever you want to call it. I'm glad I stuck with it. Uh, that's one of the things that, uh, it takes up a lot of real estate in my shop, but it's one of those super gratifying, personally gratifying things that you can say, yeah, that material on that knife is mine. Uh, and I've even delved into, um, making my own laminated titanium uh, mokatai or whatever you'd like to term it, I guess. Uh, but I've done that recently, and that's pretty cool, too, because that adds a whole different, uh, uh, I guess, spectrum to what I've already been doing. But it's just different materials, just same process, just different. So yeah. I've, I've really liked seeing some of that lava lamp stuff. Is What grades of you you share what grades of steel that is how to, sure no do problem to like do like a bluing salt or something to get the the color on there or yeah all of, all of the blue the stuff that you see on on in my work is all hot bluing like a gun barrel okay um with the lava lamp there too that was about a 10-year uh learning curve and <laughs> what works what works out the best i should say for what i was looking for and basically, it boils down to a core steel of 52100, pure nickel, 1095, 15 and 20, and 1084. Okay. So, and the, the mix is, you know, you can do whatever you want with it or whatever. Uh, but I've figured out over the years that that is the, the most consistent and uh, predictable. Predictable. You know, again, with salt heat treating, I know how to heat treat the stuff. 
uh, I know exactly what the color combinations are going to be, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the forging of the materials, like I said, is, is one of the things that I'm glad I stuck with it. Uh, I was at one point very tempted to give it up, uh, but I'm, again, hard-headed and not not the brightest bulb in the box. So, so pretty much all the Damascus on your knives is all stuff you've made, right? Correct. Ninety, yeah. I would say ninety-eight percent. Okay. Uh, I don't. I, I buy Damascus steel, and I will use other people's steels on request. You know, if you're paying for it, yeah. I'll put anything on there you want. Yeah. You know, uh, we're we're all we all know what we are. We're just quibbling over price. You know, so. Um, again, I will use anything as long as it's within reason, I guess. You that's, know? that's pretty rare, though, for somebody to want you to use someone else's steel. Damascus steel for a while was was big, but everybody wants that lava lamp. You know, yeah. that's, that's the thing. And that's that was, I mean, that's just basically, I don't know if you can use the term anymore, San Mai, you know, but he, uh, made, he that, made one. That's been, that's been copyrighted. You're, you're not yeah. allowed to say that. Okay. A San Mole. So, <laughs> yeah. They got struck down, I'm pretty sure, right? <laughs> But oh, well, yeah, he got laughed down. That's a fact. Well, and he, <laughs> you know, he made a, a knife, and it the pattern was so wild that so it looks like a lava lamp. It, it just kind of came naturally, of, and he was like, "Oh, that's the perfect name for it." He'd been making it for five, six years at that point, and, but just that name was not there. And then, yeah, after the first post, it was everybody was like, "I want lava lamp, lava lamp, lava lamp." So right. a name can really, you know, change the game on a lot of things. But it's like, hey, it's the same stuff he's been making. He's just got a cool name now, you know? Right. Yeah. One of the- one of the lessons I learned from Andy was obviously blade patterns. Always give them a name because at first I was just pattern number one, pattern number four. And it's like, no, 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 it's, it's got to have a name. <laughs> and then any distinctive handle material combinations, give it a name. And it is so much easier to market the name than just. Right. Yeah. Model seven with uh, three color wood. You know, that that's not marketable. If you tell them it's the. You know, yeah, it's the Alaskan model with, uh, yeah, uh, whatever. It's, yeah, it, it, you're correct. Yeah, black paper micarta with natural micarta liner doesn't sound nearly as cool as tuxedo. Right. Bingo. Tuxedo hand. There it yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, lava lamp with tuxedo handle. I, uh, yeah, I'd buy that. Yeah, exactly. Right. I don't even know what it is, and I'd buy it, you know. <laughs> So the, the the lamination there uh, is that was that the part of what you why you built your rolling mill or did you have a rolling mill before the I saw you built one like in I think it was like 2020 or something like that yeah it was last year last year yeah okay. last year. Uh, um, funny story on that I had seen rolling mills work before in other maker shops etc cetera, etc. Cetera. And actually, at the Minnesota Hammer in last year, some guy brought one along. And Tracy Mickley, the owner of USA, and I are very yeah. good friends, and we like to ruin a lot of material because that's what we do. Yeah. Anyway, he had this rolling mill set up in his in out outside, and he said, "Hey, why don't we do some of this the, the laminated titanium?" I said, "Cool." So we did. We pressed it down, and I said, "Hey, why don't we try it on the rolling mill?" So we walked over to the rolling mill with the titanium billet got it hot, rolled it through that mill. And again, skies opened up, cherubs started singing, you know, the light shone down and it was like, oh my God, I need one of these rolling mills. <laughs> so we got home and now Corey works for Weimer Bearing and again is a, a very good engineer in his own right. Uh, there too, we sat down, figured it out. 
I bought enough material to make two rolling mills, one for myself and one for Tracy Mickley, USA Knife Supply. Uh, anyway, I got to building on this thing, and the suggestion was to come up with a hydraulic drive rather than electric, because hydraulic, you can apply way more pressure, and you can also instantly reverse it, direction. So not only can you roll forward, but you can also roll the billet back out to you. So that was the quest. And we made this rolling mill via Corey's instructions as far as the motors and stuff go. And this thing turns out to be a beast. I mean, absolutely a beast. You can roll out a piece of Damascus and it'd be 27 inches long and it varies in thickness 10 to 15 thousandths in the entire length. Wow. That means you can go right to the precision grinder or a belt grinder and make a knife. Yeah. There's no more angle grinding. There's no more milling <laughs> it down. There's none of that. You can roll it right to thickness. Well, that saves me about six or seven steps in my process of making folding knives. So I can literally cut the blade out, drill a couple pilot holes, put it on the precision grinder, precision grind it down, throw it on the mill, mill it out, and then good to go. That's it. I mean, this dr drastically cut down my production time. So that was literally the, the quest for the rolling mill. Oh, and by the way, it does a fantastic job on the titanium stuff, too. So Yeah. I see that you have like a foot pedal thing yeah. there, too. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the one that was in that we saw in Minnesota was was built using just stuff from like Farm and Fleet, like the cheap kind of sprockets and chain and um you know real basic bearings and, and that's all the stuff that i i sell at my work and it was like i got i got way better stuff you know his chain was jumping the sprocket was getting kind of chewed up and it was like man i i can get you i can get you hooked up here and then uh we found the plans there's some some guy in like australia or something who had plans um so using using um fusion 360 which is a program i used to you know do uh cnc stuff i was able to kind of just draw up this kind of mock version of it we could work the foot pedal up and down to see how much of a bite you're going to get on the roll, uh, the roller uh, wheels. Um, I kind of put the motor in, I put the chain in, the, kind of built like a mock-up version of it. So we knew pretty much kind of how to build it going into it. And then I, you know, kind of did some reverse, you know, engineering math-wise to figure out what, what motor to use and figure out the tonnage that you got. And you cannot slow it down. No. It doesn't even know that you have steel in there. It, no. it literally, I mean... I, we got some videos of my dad putting a building and standing on it. He's standing on the pedal full weight. And just, this thing just doesn't even slow down. It's amazing. Yep. Never missed a beat. Didn't even change tone. Right. Right. <laughs> so if you put your hand in there, yeah, you got, you got some serious issues. Um, but yeah, um, there too, when it comes to forging, uh, in fact, one of those little hammers I built years ago is going to be for sale because I don't need it anymore. This thing does such a great job that it literally rolls stuff out. So. But I, I remember being a kid, we, we went to Mike Blue's place, and he had a, a rolling mill that was hooked up to what, a tractor or something? Yeah, a John Deere tractor. tractor. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's been around, and it's not nothing new. Um, I think that we just designed and built the one that is, you know, pretty badass, brand new. Um, it was uh, far better than the one that we saw there. And, you know, you've got a, a local friend here who has been using a rolling mill for years. Um, so it's it's nothing new in the industry. But no, like he said, it, it saves a huge amount of time going into the surface grinder or you know milling process. Sounds like y'all dialed in the precision and and simplified it a little bit, though. Correct, correct. Like I said, uh, with with the rolling mill coming off of that thing machine where it's plus or minus ten to fifteen thousandths from end to end, it's like wow, that um, there's no more grinding. 
you know, no more hand grinding. So even if you were making straight knives, you could literally dust off the scale that's created from the forging process and you're good to go. This thing's flat. It's ready to rock. I mean, it doesn't get any simpler than that, you know? Yeah. So the the bad news was the price tag. It was probably double what I could have bought one for. But in the next breath, it's way more heavy duty. And it's, uh, again, hydraulic, which uh, to me is huge because I could literally plummet off my hydraulic press that I already had. Mm. So it's literally, when I say plug and play, it's, that's it. You literally plug the lines in with quick disconnects and turn it on, you're rock and roll. That's it. Yeah. What are, uh, what are some other things you've done to grow your business? Uh, growing my business. Um, tell people no. <laughs> which sounds totally counterproductive uh i stopped doing like knife repairs uh stuff like that oh can you put a new handle on this or some of those things and i know it it doesn't it's not a you know to make it sound arrogant uh but it's just stuff that was killing my time you know and uh there too as you already mentioned uh for sooner or later you figure out time equals money so yeah, if, you're, if you're not getting 40, 60, 80, whatever, whatever it is per hour right. that you need, mm-hmm. then you're killing yourself. But I still think Internet is huge as far as growing your business. Uh, Instagram and Facebook are still uh, muscle bound big time uh, there too. Anybody that knows you or wants to get a hold of you certainly has that opportunity. So I'm, I'm, I'm a big pro- proponent of Instagram. I like Instagram a lot. That's my kind of preferred platform. Mm-hmm. And I still, I still have a website. I still have a contact, you know, information on there. I still answer every inquiry that comes in. You know, it may be no, I'm not going to do that, or but I still tell, you know, talk to people. Uh, a lot of a lot of makers have uh, gotten to the point where I won't even answer those emails. Well, I think that's wrong. I really do. But you're on this job because you offer a service. That's literally what it is. We offer a service. And in being a service industry, you need to take that opportunity to talk to these people. Even if it is no, you know, you're not going to do it or whatever. Yeah. Or maybe you can turn them in the right direction. It's somebody that can help them out. It's still that puts a positive light on your name to those people. So sometimes saying I'm not the right person for this, but here's the guy that is. Gets you more credibility than if you took the job. That's absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. If uh, if I'm telling him no and the next guy tells him no, eventually the guy's going to find somebody that will help him out. But he will remember the first one that said no, but I know a guy. You know, so. Well, and I I struggle with the talking to people. I mean, I self-selected for an industry where I spend... The vast majority, if not all day, alone in an abandoned industrial area. <laughs> like the, the communicating with people is not pleasant for me. But to your point, it's just a necessary aspect of business. And you're running a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, see, I'm not talking to people. Oh, okay. I don't know if you're aware of this, but when you exclude Kyle and I's wife, we got like three listeners. <laughs> I would hope there'd be more than that, but all right. (laughs) Yeah, we probably should have mentioned that before. I was going to say that would have been in need to know info coming in. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, if I had told you that, you wouldn't have come on. <laughs> true, too. But no, the, there's a couple things that I, I would like to say to any new maker coming into this thing. Never be closed-minded to anybody's processes. Over the years, I do what I do. It's 35 years or 33 years of practice. You do it a different way. That doesn't mean it's wrong. If you ask me how I do things, I'd be more than happy to tell you. But new guys coming into this thing, oh, I'm, you know, it's strictly machine this, machine that. Uh, that's not always right. That's not always right. Um, you got to be open-minded and talk to people. I mean, uh, that's literally what you had mentioned earlier about the Blade Show. That's a huge place. Talk to people. It's as simple as it gets. One of the things that we've tried to reproduce with the South Carolina Knife Makers Guild that I loved about the Georgia Guild is they have meetings at different people's shops because I've never been in somebody's shop that I didn't learn something. So many people have so many different ways of doing things that any chance I have to work with somebody else, I learn something. Oh, yeah, I, there too. Watch, just watching somebody, watching Kyle do firework. I'm sure I will catch him in August doing his thing, and I will. I know I will learn something. I must have fireworked a country mile of material in my life, but I'm sure there's things that you do differently than me that make a lot more sense than the way I was doing it. You know, doesn't mean it's wrong, doesn't mean it's right, but it's something different. And like you said, if you don't learn something, you got your head in the sand. When I uh, when I teach sharpening classes, I, I steal it from uh, frequently when a sergeant in the army is starting a an educational segment. They'll say there's a right way, a wrong way, and the army way. <laughs> and I like to use that for sharpening because there's a lot of ways to do this. And I'm not telling you it's the right way or the wrong way. I'm just telling you this is how I do it. Right. And I like that approach with pretty much anything, especially with knife making, anything that's hands-on. I don't want to get into an argument over what's the right way and the wrong way. I just want to see how you've done it. Yeah. that's. I mean, like I said, there's different ways to skin the cat. And that's literally why I stand there. I don't say a word when somebody's doing a demo. I never say a word. I have 30 years into this business and I probably know a better way to do it. I'm not saying nothing. You know, that's not my job. It's your job. You're the one demoing, not me. You know, I never say a word. If you want to talk to somebody about making folding knives, I'll help you out. No problem. You want to talk about, you know, doing file work. Hey, there's another guy right here. Talk to him. Yeah. You know, I just assume pass the buck for sure. When it comes to somebody's expertise in another area. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, if, and if you are newer, you can, you can take your latest work and you can go up to a maker. And if you ask them, Hey, what do you think? 99 out of a hundred times, they're going to say, it looks great. Good job. Keep up the good work. If you say, you know, what can I do different or what, what would, how could I change this? Or mm-hmm. what would you, what would you say needs improvement? And how then be prepared be prepared for them to tell you exactly what you don't right. want to hear. You know? Ask the right questions. Right. Ethan Becker has a great, when someone hands him a piece of work and says, what do you think? He'll say, do you want me to tell you what I like about this? Or do you want me to critique it? Yeah. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'll tell, I'll tell everybody the same thing. It's awesome. Now you want me to tell you what you could improve on. Yeah. You know, that's the next, that's the question you should be asking. Not is, do you like my work? It's how can I improve it? That's the question. Well, and that's the, that's the one you're going to learn on. Oh, absolutely. 
you know. Yeah, I, I live ten minutes down the road from my dad, so I got I got that uh, you know that that instant bit of advice where if I if I'm working on something, I can bring it over and you know say here's the latest and you know he'll he'll grab it and within seconds he'll be like, oh, that corner's too sharp, needs to round that off. I mean, <laughs> just it's automatic at this point where he just kind of critiques it and says this needs to be you know rounded more or whatever changed or you know but but i mean that's that's the beauty of of having a you know guy like my dad is is a mentor and a teacher i can i can ask him what is what needs to be changed and he'll tell me exactly here's what needs to be changed you know without any fluff around it then the truth of the matter is very few people want to be told how to be better right yep they just want to be told that they did a good job correct correct and in knife making that's the wrong thing to think, you know. I, I, Thirty-three years I've been making knives. I have never, to this day, made a perfect knife. Never. Think about it's that. Imp- it's impossible. I've yeah. made thousands and thousands and thousands of knives. Not one of them is perfect. I remember being incredibly proud of a knife I made. Like, I, I was, I was f- incredibly proud of the grinds. And then five years later, I look at that knife and I'm embarrassed that it's out there and I'm trying to buy it back so that no one ever sees it. (laughs) Small story. The very first knife I ever sold back in 1988 was to a co-worker. And uh, anyway, some years later, he found out I was making folding knives. And he said, I really want one of your folding knives. And I said, great, because I want to buy that first knife back. (laughs) Now, you got to remember, this guy paid $80 for that very first knife. It cost me $450 and another folding knife to get that knife back. And it is <laughs> truly a POS. It is there's horrible. A there's a guy in Atlanta, Todd Musman, that has one of my first knives. And I am constantly trying to buy it back from him. <laughs> and he continues refusing and one day he finally said, look, Dan, one day you might be successful. And if you are, when you die, this knife is going to be worth money. <laughs> Still waiting for that day, right? Yeah, he's a dreamer. Yeah. <laughs> Still holding on to hope. Oh, no, I'm, I'll probably die soon. I mean, that, that, that's a safe bet. But there, too, to have that very first knife I ever made or sold, it wasn't the first one I ever made, but to have that actually back in my position did two things, just like you said. One, it, it covered up my embarrassment. But then I can show people where I've come from. Because if you look at that knife compared to what I'm making today, it doesn't even look like it's in the same – it was made in the same country. And so it's that bad. It's it's horrible. But Kind of like the Roman general when they're, they're taking their, their triumph parade – had someone whispering in the, their ears, they were accepting all this. Congratulations is you know, one day you will die and be forgotten. I try to remember if I get too boastful about my work, five years from now, I'm going to be embarrassed by this. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, uh, here's another reason you, uh, Kyle, you mentioned this way back, why I got into knife making. Another major reason. Uh, is to have something on this earth when I'm gone with my name on it. Yeah. I got thousands of them out there. So there are two. That's another thing that is stuck in the back of my head back then. It's like, oh, I'm going to make something that somebody will appreciate. Plus, it's got my name on it. Eventually, I'm going to be gone. But these knives will still be here a thousand years from now. 
So See, in my two cents on that, my, the evil, the evil empire of Corey Martin <laughs> is that he signs his name, just Martin, M-A-R-T-N. I sign my name C dot Martin. So I, my plan is that in the future, when these guys are sending their knives back in for a spa day, quote unquote, I'm just going to add that little C dot and they're all going to become mine. <laughs> it's going to take over the empire. Nice. <laughs> right. All right. That now you know what I got to live with. See, that's why I don't let kids. That's why I don't let the kids in my shop. <laughs> Well, I don't let him in mine either, but he finds his way in. Well, and, and you know, kind of what you said there, Dad, about, you know, you want to have something that's it's yours and it's earth, the legacy type thing. You know, there's, there's a lot of father and son makers out there who you put the two knives on the table and you can't tell who made what. They're yeah. so similar. They're so identical. And, I, and from day one, I, that was, I was very much against that where I, I didn't want any, any crossover like that. So even like his, his lava lamp Damascus. You know, I, I've made a similar thing where it's, it's completely opposite material. So instead of having a solid core, I have a Damascus core with solid, you know, outers. So uh, just to be completely 100% opposite of what my dad does. And he calls it reverse lava. I call it reverse sand. Yeah, reverse sand, <laughs> reverse lava, whatever. But um, but I, I mean, I don't ever want to have that that sort of indistinction, indistinction between who made the knife. I want my own style, my own thing, which is very tough because, you know, I'm looking at 30 years of success. It's like, well, okay, I, I gotta, I gotta go in the woods and make my own path. And he's got this nice paved path in front of me, you know? So it's, it's kind of difficult in that sense, but also a, a fun challenge too. Um, well, it becomes, hopefully it becomes standing on the shoulders of a giant. Yeah. I, I feel like coming out of the gate, my stuff is a lot better than I, I've, I've advanced the, the quality, you know, decades just because of, I've been around it my whole life. Um, well, you get to learn from his mistakes. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that you can make entirely new mistakes all on your right. own. Right. Or rediscover that same mistake and going, shit, he was right, you know. So No, no, no. No? no? You never say dad was right. <laughs> no. Oh, that's right. That is, that is. He wasn't wrong. That's a religion, right? Yeah. Somewhere, there's a dad's never right. That's a religion. Yeah. He he wasn't not right. <laughs> yeah. <so>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't not, not correct. Yeah. Right. Talking about trying to find your own voice, how did how do y'all define your brand? Uh, it's that coloration. Uh, I really like vivid, bold colors, and hope. I mean, I can honestly say some of them borderline gaudy, but I still like to maintain uh, a, a theme of some kind. You know, from front to rear, there's something happening along there that connects the front of the knife to the back of the knife. And if it's coloration, that's what you said is my brand, then let it be that. Um, mm -hmm. So that's it. I'm king of coloration. That's as simple as it gets. Corey, Corey you're allowed to answer that too. You, you have a brand. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm still kind of in that um, like early phase of trying to figure out, you know, trying to find my niche, so to speak. I've got a couple of knife models that have been successful. Um, so I'm immediately going to back burner those, never make them again. You know, yeah, my as one does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm I'm in, I'm kind of in the phase now where I, I like doing the kind of the carving stuff. Um, some of the latest that I've made, are, you know, are kind of the, the creature things, kind of similar vein to the the whole bug knife deal, um, but just more yeah. of that kind of biomechanical look. I'm, I'm I'm a big fan of that right now. But it's a lot of it's a lot of carving, a lot of work, and then really it's just it's the fit and finish that I, I try to work on. You know, I don't I don't want to see any scratches and stuff, and you know, just put in the extra hand sanding, the extra buffing extra time just to go above and beyond in that sense uh, and that that stems from my dad that's you know there's a certain level of quality that has to be met before it goes out the door um so yeah i mean i'm, I'm still kind of in that phase of trying to find 
find my groove, I guess. One of the really valuable pieces of advice Aldo Bruno gave me was people pay for the last 10 minutes of your work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Never mind the 47 hours before that. No, no. Yeah, no, they don't, they don't care. Did you take it to 600 grit or 800 grit or 2000 grit? You know, yeah. The, the last 10 minutes is what they're paying for. They're ignorant to, or don't care about what it took to get to that point. Correct. They're going to pay you for wherever you stopped. Well, we've all been asked that question, you know, how many hours you got in this knife? I don't, yeah, I don't even know. I don't want to know because it would probably drive me nuts, you know, but it doesn't matter. You get to a certain point where it's like the end result will be the end result, regardless of what it takes, you know, and arguably the next knife I make, I'll have 13 years in it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the one after that, I'll have 13 years in one day. Correct. In four hours, you know? Um, Yeah. So that's literally how it, how it transpires. It's, uh, you know, how many hours are in that knife? I I don't want to know. I really don't. I've been at it for 30 some years, but I can't tell you how many hours it took. You know, I gave up that ghost a long time ago. Trying to count your hours on something. Boy, you find out that job at McDonald's is looking pretty romantic. (laughs) You know, I I a lot more profitable. You know, I I did some work time studies to try and figure out what I needed to be charging hourly. And that was a... (laughs) On one side, it was a really good idea because it was eye-opening and educational. And on the other side, it was a horrible, horrible decision. Right. It's like, wow. I I was better off not knowing that I make $2.50 an hour. You know, I didn't know I was broke until you just told me that. (laughs) (laughs) I did like the kind of keep it a a tally, kind of how many belts I used for whatever to kind of get an idea of what I was charging for the knife made sense. But then... Then realized I needed to up my prices quite a bit. So, uh, some years ago, I did that on a batch of knives. Figured out how many, you know, cleaned, threw away all the belts, and started. Okay, cool. Counted all the belts after it was all done. And at the time, now again, price break being what it is, um, it was like twenty eight dollars and some odd cents per knife. That's what I had invested in belts. Well, that was also before I started finishing the two thousand grit and hot bluing and all this other stuff. So. Everything's relevant. You know, I, today I wish it was only $28 on each knife. Yeah. That would it's be like a break. Three belts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'd be like, wow, that one, I did that one for free. You know? Yeah. The last time I, the last time I really did, and I honestly paid attention for a five inch S35 inch blade, I had between 54 and 60 something dollars in belts. Yep. Yeah, so your your study was way 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 more recent than my own, um, yeah. but there too, like you said, I quit doing that because one, it was depressing. Uh, two, once you figured out how many hours you had invested in that particular piece and what you were trying to sell it for, yeah, you like I said, I was training for my new career. Would you like large fries with that? You know, new guys, I try to explain to them that first of all, I, I tried to tell Kyle, don't go full time. You'll never make money at this. You've got to be a knife maker because you love making. And then if you're really, really lucky, you'll love it enough that you won't go broke. Correct. There's always an old standing joke about knife makers. How do you become a million dollar (laughs) knife maker? You start with two. (laughs) (laughs) 
After Start you burn through that first million, you still got one left. So <laughs> it's not too late, Kyle. Yeah, <laughs> turn and run, man. Yeah. Turn and run. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> think, are you full-time kyle yeah i've been full-time since uh the end of august is when my okay. my engineering job went from the chicagoland area down to texas and uh so i i've been we moved to our new house so i've been getting my shop up and going and my boys are i've got twin boys that are gonna be six here in june and they they're in half day kindergarten. So I watch them in the morning. They're around. So sometimes I can do some stuff uh, with them around, but lots of times it's just playing no. with them and doing homework or reading books and stuff and then get a couple hours. My hand is off to you because I am a twin okay. and uh, I have the utmost respect and pity for my parents because, oh my God, the stuff we put them through. Yeah. You know, they say that um, if you're going to, if you're going to have twins, it's better to have twins first. So you don't know how much more work it is than just having one at a time. So, well, if you have only <laughs> one after this, it's going to be like a walk in the park, yeah, you know, maybe like you could do that on, on your unrest mode. You know, uh, we yeah. were, my twin brother and I were the last of five. Wow. So my parents were wore out before we even got there yet, but, uh, yeah, Peter can yeah. just do whatever he wants. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Let, let him out playing traffic. Hey, we don't care, you know. So yeah, I'll say this. When the boys were young, those were nowhere near my profitable years. <laughs> but looking back, I am so fortunate that doing what I was doing, I could have that time with the boys. Yeah. Um, Agreed. I mean, if I had done something else, I could have made a lot more money and that could have changed our situation at home a little more, but I really, I really am so fortunate to have been able to spend time with my boys. Absolutely. Time with family is huge. It's a huge thing. It still is. No matter what era of time you look at, it's always a big deal. Family's always family. So now it's just so amazing that the boys will acknowledge that I exist. I mean, to actually spend time with them, that's probably, wow, that's Yeah. That's the way I look at it. He, he keeps looking at over my shoulder. How can I get ahead of him? You know, <laughs> but <laughs> no, he's uh, like I said, he's been a huge help as far as uh, the knife thing goes uh, with photography work. And there too, I'm bouncing stuff all off of him constantly. Um, and the same thing with my wife. It has to be a team effort. Uh, make no mistakes. You you may think you're alone as a knife maker, but it takes a whole lot more people than just you. Kind of bouncing back to what we were saying, like if you have a, someone uh, inspect your work, my mom oh. is the ultimate. You you better have your stuff wired tight, man, because <laughs> it's it's brutal. I mean, that's the final inspection, and it's like I, I've done everything on this knife. It's perfect and immediately. It's like, well, I, what about this? What about that? What about that? It's like, God damn it. All right, back to the drawing board, you know. <laughs> Her famous question, is it done? Yeah. Because yeah. if you answer yes, then that opened the door, you know. <laughs> it's like, okay. I thought it was, I but thought not it was anymore. done, yeah. but I guess we'll go back out there for a few more hours. But no, the, the team thing, like you're saying, it, I, uh, I, give it, I give folders to my wife to see if she can open them because she's got a pretty, you know, dainty hand. And it's like, if she can do it, it's good because you kind of build up that callus and you're like, this thing's easy to open. And you give it to her and she's like, why can't I open it? It's like, okay, well, I got to lighten it up a little bit, you know? Yeah. Some of those, uh, flipper, flipper knives, if you don't, 
if you don't know how to do it and push it and flip your finger right. the right way, mm-hmm. um, I don't know how many people I've had to like show how to use some of those fl- or flippers that I have. It's like, no, don't try to like flip your finger down like a like you're pulling a gun. Like push it, push it like into the yeah, into the handle. Like you're pushing a button. Yeah, yeah, like you're pushing a doorbell. But people still just want to like flick it like a mm-hmm. <laughs> like. Your like they got their fingers wrapped around the spine <laughs> yeah, of the blade. Right. It's like, why yeah, is it working? The, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they got the death grip on there for starters. That's usually Trying to push it with their thumb. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can't. I can't do it. You're talking about having a team. One of the things that I was not prepared for is how much work is not making knives. Oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, all of the stuff that has to be done so that I can get into the shop, I was really not prepared for that when I got started. Correct. Uh, I know personally I spend about two hours in the morning on interweb stuff. Uh, then I go out in the shop until five at night and make dinner. And then I'm usually back out there till about eight o'clock at night again. Uh, then I come in and do whatever shipping and billing and whatever else I have to do. But it's knife making to be to say you're a knife maker is a misnomer because you're not it's not a job. It's a lifestyle. It's 24-7. That's what I do. It's literally Monday through Sunday. I have no weekends. And I have no set times, you know, 8 to 5, and I'm calling it quits. I wish. Uh, that that, that job would be well easy. Are going that day. Yeah, exactly. And how many times have you walked out in that shop, and with the first two hours, you ruined two pieces? That's it. Stop. Walk away. Go yep. back in the house. Do something else. Because you touch the third one. It's ruined, too, you know. <laughs> More more internet work, yeah. yeah more well, internet work, absolutely. But uh, no, a, it's it's a great thing to do. Uh, it, it offers up a huge amount of creativity. Uh, you do meet some very interesting people, uh, but it's not just a job. Uh, I figured it out a long time ago that it takes a lot more effort than just nine to five, for sure. So, speaking of meeting interesting people, how do you? Where do you feel? knife shows fit into running a knife business um i know looking at uh your website and different things you, you've been to a ton of shows over many years yeah. being part of the guild knife makers guild and stuff like that absolutely uh to me a knife show for a knife maker is a necessary evil many shows you go to you don't make a dime in fact it costs you money blade show being in, included um yeah. It's the most expensive show in the world to do is the Blade Show. Uh, But I also look at that as an advertising vehicle, not a sales platform. It is a sales platform, platform, but that's only by accident or happy coincidence, whatever. Uh, To put your name at a table in front of people, they want to put a name to your face. That's important, especially some of the old school buyers that are still in existence or whatever. They want to meet the maker. Uh, so the knife show thing is still very important, and it's a high priority in my life, unless it's losing money constantly. <laughs> Those shows I usually cut out relatively quickly. So there is the fact that it has to pay for itself. Three things happen at a show, mostly good things. One is you get to network other people and or for supplies and, and materials and stuff like that. Two, you actually make sales at the table which often is great because it puts beans back in the pot but the third one is the people 
you have to be able to connect with the people and, and they again want to put a name with a face so that's my thoughts on knife shows and i'd Try to tell a lot of young makers that, to your point, you're not going to make money. If you can break even, that's a great show. Yes. But to remember the guy that came up your t- to your table today didn't buy today, but he might buy in six months. Correct. Right. Correct. Absolutely. Especially when they they meet you, they talk to you, they look at your your work firsthand, being able to pick it up and fondle it or whatever. And then he goes home and does his research on the internet and finds out who you are and looks into your background, et cetera, et cetera. And then we'll buy. Then we'll buy a knife. He's the easiest one to sell a knife to in the future. Yeah. It's the first time buyer that's always the roughest. Always the roughest. There's been so many shows where you the guy comes up, looks at your stuff at the table, says, ah, I'm going to go check out the rest of the show, comes back, the knife is sold. And then two, three weeks later, a month later, all of a sudden he's forwarding a picture that I took of that knife. To my dad saying, hey, I saw this at the show. It was gone by the time I got it. How much, you know, I would like to order one. How much right. How much would it be with these materials and whatever? So it, yeah, the, the show has generated the sale, even though I mean, it's actually generated two sales. You sold the knife originally and then sold it a second time, you know? So it's it definitely pays off in the long run. Even if it might not be that immediate sale at the show, it might be that long-term thing. Speaking of shows, what was the, the Forge and Fire experience like? Uh... Bucket list item, you know, a bucket list item for me being on national TV. Uh, The people that run the show, uh, other contestants were awesome people. Most, I have to inject here, most of those guys I already knew because I've been in this business for so long. Uh, I knew, you know, not only one of the judges, but two of the contestants that I was on the show with. I already knew them. So it was like old home week, you know, so it was very cool. But when it got down to it, it was still a competition and it was real. It was a real competition. When that clock started, that's all you had. There was no cut times, no, oh, I got to go to the bathroom or any, that didn't matter. So in that, in that respect, it's legit. It's absolutely legit. So I loved the experience. I really did. I thought it was awesome. Even though I was in the first season and their editing wasn't the best and blah, 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 blah. But I was still glad I did it for sure. Well, and- I, I, I mean, all the seasons are good, but I like the early seasons when it was it was a combination of masters that you knew, but also masters that if you weren't really in the industry, you didn't get a chance to know. I agree. I agree. Uh, for sure. There was definitely some, um, you know, dark horse winners in that whole thing. But I just, you know, the whole the way it was run there too, their hours are different than mine. I mean, if they got working by 10 o'clock in the morning, that was early. But yeah. you didn't finish until after 10 o'clock at night. Well, nine o'clock at night, I'm turning into a pumpkin, you know. <laughs> and uh, so that was totally different. So and it was I mean, it was uh, the experience was different than what I'm normally used to. But again, it's still TV. So yeah. well, and the, the time that they chose to do it too, oh. right before the, and they've still kept that same time frame right before the blade show, which I, I think it kind of hurt them as far as getting, you know, certain makers on the show because they're like, I can't take the time away. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. My, my final episode uh, literally was filmed 11 days before the blade show. So that was instrumental in getting Corey back into this business. He had made some knives when he was younger, but when I got back from the blade show, uh, I literally begged and pleaded him to come over to the shop and help me 
because I had 11 days to prep for blade and I didn't have squat. I think you got what, eight, eight or nine knives? Eight done? or nine knives yeah. we got, we had got done in 11 days. Uh, and they were nice knives, but wow. uh, you want to talk about burning the candle at all four ends. Wow. There too. It was again, bucket list item. I'm glad I did it. I really had a good time. Um, <clears throat> sounds like you would do it again. Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> they've uh, contacted me and I politely declined. I, you know, I have heard that from a couple of other guys too. Um, but it was it was fun to do once. Yeah, again, they um, had me rape, make a rapier uh, sword, which I again I don't make long things. I make folding knives, but I'm literally on the plane calling my son, telling him to go out and buy four inch exhaust pipe for a diesel truck so I can make a quench tank big enough to do this sword. I got a buddy of mine who's a knife maker. Um, I wound up borrowing his forge and his electric heat treat oven because, again, I didn't have anything big enough to do this. And I MIG welded the two forges together <laughs> end to end. So I had something long enough to heat treat this, this sword with or whatever. So it was a calamity of errors trying to get stuff together to do the show. And, and I thought there would be a time period between the time the first session was filmed and the time I got home and then they would send a crew. I think it'd be days you know, a couple, four or five days to get my act together. Baloney. I got home at 9.30 in the morning. They were at my house by two in the afternoon. So it was immediate. So it was like, oh, my God. Yeah. So that was a, it was an eye-opener. And, again, the, the experience was awesome. You want to talk about thinking on your feet. I mean, it's absolutely what it was. Yeah, I picked so, you up from the airport. I had the, the six-foot-long tube in, in, in the, the car. car between us. <laughs> so. Well, and I've I've talked to some guys that I've known on the show, and I kind of cocked my eyebrow, and I'm like, "Really? That was the combination you chose?" And they're like, "Well, I only have so many choices." Mm-hmm. That that they got really boxed in that that pushed them outside of the where they would work. Correct. Again, I make folding knives. They make me make a sword. You know. Yeah. So. I wish they would have said, hey, can you make a folder? Oh, my God, yeah, with my eyes closed, <laughs> you know. I can do it by Braille. I can do it by feel, you know. We want but, you to make uh, the full 14 inches long, though. Yeah, yeah. That's... Yeah, we want you to make an Admiral Lestrange folding buoy. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I forget exactly. Because, again, it would be doable, you know. I forget exactly <clears throat> who we talked to. Uh, they had to make the, it was like a 12 or 14 inch uh the friction folder. Oh, clasp clasp knife. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They uh, they had to have the handle in there, but like all the handle material was like eight inches long or ten inches long or something like that. But the blade was the blade had to be four at least fourteen. Um, so they were like trying to like glue pieces together and. Ay ay ay. So. Well, so a lot of that now again now if you if you think about it realistically most of the stuff they do now is literally for TV. Yeah. You know, uh, it's stuff that you and I or any maker in, in his right mind would not do, you know, period. Um, so again, you know, there's the drama of, of TV that plays into the part of that whole script. So. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Self-editing. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> That'll be off the air conversation. Uh so uh, you're part of the Midwest Knife Makers Guild also. Is there anything you want to talk about with that? Or with, we've been around for just a little bit. I was, I 
joined right when uh 2019 when it started and then covid hit and then uh kind of really haven't made any any trips anywhere but uh hopefully i can start making it to some more guild meetings and hopefully can move it around possibly a little bit i uh was instrumental in its inception <clears throat> i was literally there when we were drinking beer and talking foolishness mm. uh during its conception i guess you call it um <clears throat> who was all who was all drinking beer together for that oh good guy it was me tracy uh, jess hoffman um luke was there um jeb taylor uh, a few other uh, i probably won't mention them because they're on the protected you know uh witness protection program um <laughs> anyway the uh, the biggest thing for me when that the whole thing started and I got on the soapbox and told them it's got to be about teaching and eventually we have to have a show. So the teaching part of it came to fruition. Um, there's a ton of information given off at them hammerheads. Just you name it, they've done it. It's there. I mean, there's a 500 years of experience in that room. So if you didn't learn, it's because you didn't ask or you weren't paying attention. Uh, and secondly, is that knife show coming up um, there too? Me and uh, Wes Wernemont literally spearheaded that whole program <clears throat> from the beginning. And uh, now it's coming to reality. So <clears throat> it's a good thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of teaching guilds. So I, I always love to hear a story that starts with we have to teach. Correct. Yep. I've got my, my wife on board to... Like if we're going to make this knife making thing a full-time deal, I got to keep, keep progressing my skills and stuff. Just can't keep doing the same thing over and over again. That's a heck of a place to learn. Yeah. Come on down to Greenville and I'll tell, I'll show you lots of things not to do. <laughs> well, yeah, you can come up to Waterford and I can show you that. <laughs> I'll, you know. I'll take you up on that. <laughs> that's, a lot, that's a lot shorter drive. <laughs> Trust me, you'll walk away with the same amount of knowledge you have right now. So. <laughs> hey, but we have spring. <laughs> yeah, you're correct. <clears throat> we we pretty can, soon right now. Our mag, yeah, pretty our, soon we'll have mosquitoes. So our my our neighbor's <clears throat> magnolia trees in bloom right now. It's really pretty. <laughs> yeah, wait till it snows. Yeah, yeah. We got a freeze warning tonight. Really? Yeah. Well, that's because I'm going fishing tomorrow. So. Yeah. yeah, man, I get it. It's gonna be a it's gonna be a high of 87 tomorrow. Oh, yeah. poor baby. My my wife my <laughs> wife had, had me out there. We were covering over the plants with some bed sheets and stuff that she already has in the ground. Huh. Yeah, Looking forward I, I to hear it, eh? you. It, it, it's sundress season here too. Yeah. 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 Well, we, God, we I want to see you in a sundress. How's that yeah. look? Just uh, hey, twenty bucks is twenty bucks, dude. <laughs> I, at least I'm not grinding in boxers and an apron. Hey, you know that happens in August. <laughs> Look, when it's ninety eight degrees outside, hundred percent humidity, in a warehouse with uh, no air conditioning and the kilns going, you got to do what you got to do. That's true. Like you said, twenty bucks is twenty bucks. <laughs> Man, I I feel bad for the some like Comcast guy was coming in to try and cold sell my business the the new internet, and I hear the door and I walk out and I pull my full face full face respirator off and I'm in a leather apron, boxers, and a pair of steel toe boots, 
<laughs> the guy just looks at him. He's like, never mind. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> Slowly ba- walks backwards out the door. We're filming a scene of Breaking Bad back here. Yeah. <clears throat> Pull that mask off and you tell him I wouldn't go in there. Yeah. <laughs> I'd wait 35, 45 minutes before I went in there. <laughs> So we kind of meandered around through a whole bunch of your your making career there. Is there anything else you want to want to share before we kind of wrap this one up? Nah, we're pretty well covered everything. Um like I said that uh, the Knife Makers Guild and that uh, the latest show is really the two hot hot items on my front burner other than the Blade show which, you know, that's coming up in what did you say how many days? 5 5 weeks. Somebody's 37 days or something like that. Too soon. Too soon? Yeah. <laughs> well, I got to go back to the shop tonight. Yeah. Yeah, not this guy. It's yeah. Miller time for me. <laughs> sleep for, sleeps for the week. <laughs> nice. That's true. All right. So if, or I should say when people want to find you, where can they find y'all? Uh, Instagram is always uh, your know, number one favorite. Uh, otherwise my website, it's petermartinknives.com. Uh, and there too, uh, email, whatever it takes, uh, martinknives at hotmail.com. I will absolutely answer every inquest that comes in. Like I said, I am not afraid of saying no or pointing you to somebody else that can help you. So. And, and Kyle, if people want to find us, where can they find us? You can keep in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com and you can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we're Knife Perspective on there and you can find us on all the podcasting platforms and you can also help uh, get some swag. We got stickers on the website and uh, love for you to help promote the show. Give us a rating or an review. That always helps. They tell me. And just if you if you see any other makers or people you want to shout out for the the shout out section uh send them our way so we can make sure we get them in the show always like trying to have those and uh thanks again for all of our sponsors you can keep in touch with dan eastland of dogwood custom knives at dogwoodcustomknives.com dogwood custom knives on facebook and instagram and you keep in touch with me kyle daly of cage daily knives at cage daily knives on facebook instagram twitter and tiktok uh, i'm gonna try to start doing some more uh, knife maker tips on uh, TikTok. Tip Tuesday. So maybe going to try to do some more, pick up a tool and just talk about it for 60 seconds or so on TikTok, and probably throw it over on Instagram also, but want to try to get some more information out like that. So thanks again, Peter and Corey it was great talking with you guys Thank and you. learning a ton about uh, how you started and everything. <laughs> a lot more, a lot more than I, than I thought. Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate it. That's the nicest way of ever I've ever heard anybody ever say you're old. Right? <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. Experience. Yeah. I had no idea you'd done so much stuff. Yeah, and so archaic. You know? Well, I, I had always heard your name around and stuff, just never like I don't know. Never I didn't know, I didn't know you were like a person. Yeah. Never never seemed to uh, there's so many people to to research and stuff. So, hey, Kyle, you know what the first rule of holes is? Yeah. Keep if digging. you find yourself in one, stop digging. <laughs> so, but yep. Yeah, thanks, Peter and Corey. I uh, want to say good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. <laughs> thanks, guys. Well, let's take it to the edge. Cause that's 
what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective. Let's get to the point. We're gonna talk about our things Cause that's what's expected. It's the night prospective. Sounds classier, doesn't it? <laughs> Something. <laughs> Nothing but class from the Dano. <laughs> hey, if it weren't for low class, he'd have no class, right? So, <laughs> hey, I know that's all my friends rule, you know. If it can't be you, aren't you glad it's me? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. All righty. You ready? Let's do this thing. All right. Three, two, one, go.